Get ready for poems for people who hate poetry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Poems for People Who Hate Poetry. Today, we're going to talk about William Blake's The Tiger and how a poet approaches explaining and understanding the famous philosophical conundrum, the problem of evil. Now, if you don't know the problem of evil, essentially it says that if there is an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-benevolent God, how can he allow evil, suffering, to exist? And there's a lot of different arguments. This has been an argument in philosophy for thousands of years since the ancient Greeks, and hundreds of philosophers have put in their two cents over the years and you know but what we're going to focus on is not the actual argument per se what i really want to showcase today is how philosophers or how a particular way of looking at the world would approach this issue and then how a romantic poet william blake approaches the same exact argument idea now you'll see that they approach it in very different ways particularly in their use of language. And this is critical, you know, to understand how they, you know, how they would approach this in terms of their language and in terms of the imagery and the flow and, you know, with um, logical prose, which is what a philosopher operates in. They write prose arguments. This is logically dictated where there's a, you know, an opening sentence, you're providing evidence and so forth, so on and so forth. Whereas a poet would use, um, you know, the connotations, denotations, metaphors, and analogies. They'd use meter and rhythm and rhyme and also classic allegories to kind of help you see and feel what they're trying to experience. Now, I'm not trying to argue poetry is superior than philosophy in explaining a philosophical argument. I'm not trying to explain that philosophy is greater than poetry and trying to explain a particular philosophical or any type of argument. What I'm trying to say is that there are different ways of viewing the world. It, uh, poetry is a specialized way of viewing the world. Playing the violin, is it gives you a certain view of an emotion, or a certain experience of an emotion that you cannot experience any other way. Which is why no matter who you are, whether you're a business person a salesperson, a marketer, whether you're a philosopher, an academic, a scientist, or a poet, a literary, a movie maker, you know, a plumber, doesn't matter what you do, you should have different experiences in the world and different ways of looking at the world, and that will help you have a more full life. Okay, so uh, as you see, I have this picture of a tiger attack up, but uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Let me give you first just two famous philosophers on the problem of evil. The so two famous philosophers and how they describe the problem of evil. So here's the Epicurean paradox. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then, is he, then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. I mean, you know, he's evil then. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? Then why call him God if he's not 
willing or able to stop this uh, problem, this suffering, right? Now, we're not talking, by the way, let me be clear on the evil. They, when they talk about this, the problem of evil, they're not usually talking about, um, you know, a man like uh, Jordan Peterson often talks about, like Cain and Abel, where Cain is doing something bad. Or even, um, you know, Cain, Cain is not sacrificing properly, is how Dr. Jordan Peterson talks about it. And so he's punished, and therefore he gets mad, and he punishes and kills Abel. And so there's this, like, malevolence, this evil that comes into play. We're talking about, you know, why would a young child perish from a disease that is, uh, you know, consumes his body and makes him suffer? You know, like a four-year-old who did nothing wrong. You know, so there's like problems in the problem of suffering that this sacrifice thing that Jordan Peterson talks about does not account for. Why is there suffering among the innocent? Or why would a good person who sacrifices properly still suffer, still suffer immensely? And this is something that Jordan Peterson cannot answer and nobody can really answer. Uh, There are, and that's not true. There are arguments for it. Um, We're not going to talk too much about that because this is not a, a discussion about the problem of evil. It's more about the different ways that a philosopher and a poet would approach it, but you need to understand a little bit of the, the background here. So this is the argument that they're making. Whatever ar- counter-argument you want to have, that's fine. But there's this is the argument that they're making, is that there's this malevolent creature up in the sky, or he doesn't exist, or why would we call this force of nature even uh, a force of nature that's above human existence? Like This is a problem if we're looking at it from that perspective. So that's... Um, that's uh, 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 oh, sorry. This I'm sorry. The second one is he God willing to prevent it but not able? Then he is uh, impotent. Is he able but not willing? That's actually David Hume. So I mix that up. The first one was uh, Epicurean. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is omnipotent. Um, okay. Anyway, so God's power we allow is infinite. Whatever He wills is executed. But neither man nor any other animal are happy. Therefore, he does not will their happiness. His wisdom is infinite. He is never mistaken in choosing the means to any end. But the course of nature tends not to uh, human or animal felicity. Therefore, it is not established for that purpose. Through the whole compass of human knowledge, there are no inferences more certain and infallible than these. In what respect, then, do his benevolence and mercy resemble the benevolence and mercy of men? So, you know, this is arguing against that um, God's power is infinite. Because if he, if he is infinite, why whatever he wills is executed, but why are we unhappy? Neither animal or man, he's saying, is unhappy. So this is a different way of approaching the problem of evil. This is David Hume again. Neither man nor any other animal are happy, therefore he does not will their happiness. His wisdom is infinite, he is, mis- he is never mistaken. So this is a different way of approaching the problem of evil. Okay, so below is a poet's take on the problem of evil. And this is the poem, The Tiger, by William Blake. But when we go into the tiger poem, I want you to, I want to approach it first by having you understand the issue that we face when we're reading this poem, particularly, but any poem. And that's the problem of context. So you really need to try to put yourself into the shoes of a, this is uh, written in, or or published, I believe, in 1794. So we'll talk a little bit about the publishing of this poem and 
related poems from uh, William Blake in a moment. But this poem is published 1794. So this is the beginning, you know, the, the Industrial Revolution has been going on for a while. And the Romantic movement, as I've talked about before, is kind of a reaction, an emotional reaction by some of the great poets and um, poets of that time and literary writers like Victor Hugo, who were kind of railing and sad against the what they saw as the encroachment of uh, civilization into their society, into their world. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that William Blake was not in poverty. You know, he did not come from poverty, so he doesn't even understand that. But this is still kind of the reaction of what the Romantics were against. The tiger, so you have to put yourself in their shoes. And the tiger represents, for William Blake, this uh, force of evil and destructiveness. Or it's not even, you know, it's not even evil in the way we might think of it. It's, um, you know, think of it as like a, a devil, like a devil, I guess would be a better way of looking at it. It's, it's similar to the snake that destroys us, except the tiger is a much more clear example than a snake. Like a snake can slither in your bed. And this was a common occurrence throughout all of history where a snake could get into your bed. Because remember, we don't have civil bulldozers knocking over their, their habitats. Man has lived in more conjunction with animals, uh, you know, pre-industrial revolution than after the industrial revolution. And for better or worse, this is just what ha- happened. <clears throat> but in this case, William Blake is using the fear and terror of tigers to understand his to give his um kind of explanation or viewpoint on the problem of evil <clears throat> so you have to you have to put yourself in the mindset of someone who has a visceral fear of tigers that it's it's in you know if you were to see a tiger even in a village in 1789 1794 that would be terrifying Today it would be scary, but we know that right around the corner have got to be men with guns who will put that tiger down if that were to ever happen. You know, when a tiger got loose not too long ago, I think it was in Ohio or something, they shot that sucker as quickly as possible. And, you know, here though, it's a lot more difficult to do that when you're living in a more primitive society. So throughout history, you know, we've had a terrible fear of tigers and uh, boars and lions, you know, because we could be killed by them. Especially, you know, obviously if you're living in an area without those creatures, you're not afraid of those creatures. But there was always some creature that we would be afraid of. Um, okay. Now, as civilization kind of improved, we were able to fend off tigers and lions and bad uh, bad creatures. And this is the same thing with natural phenomena such as floods we got better at building dams and dikes and things of that nature to protect ourselves. But the point of the, the, for all of, for most of human history until recently, we did not have that luxury. And so this was a terrifying experience for us. So by the way, you, you have this ritualistic hunt. And if you've ever wondered where it came from, it's, you know, where the, the King will come down with all of his men and his dogs and they will go hunt for you know, in a lot of times it would just be ritualistic. It would be like a tame tiger or a tame boar or something. And they would go out and they would hunt it. It would already be damaged or something. And then he would kill it. And then it would be like this, this big heroic feat. But that is symbolic of the protection of the, the human leader against the, the savage barbarism that is right beyond the gate. And this is the, the royal hunt has always been a famous and important part of civilization 
because it shows to the people under his rule that he is in charge and he is protecting them from this barbarous savagery that is right around the corner if they don't have him. And this goes back again thousands and thousands of years ago. One of the most famous myths in, um, in, in, in ancient Greek is the Caledonian boar hunt, which was a whole bunch of people, including um, a famous Amazon uh, who would go out and they hunted for this Caledonian boar that was killing all the people of this or killing people in this uh, tribe. And they needed to get all the heroes together to go out and kill this savage. And it was very difficult. And some of the heroes died. So the point is you need to understand the fear that was prevalent in uh, men and women of this era, that they were terrified of tigers and rightfully so. And tigers in this poem is going to represent this just innate evil, right? They're, they're not circus animals. They're not zoo animals. These, these are, if you see them, you've got to kill them before they kill you. They're pure evil. It'd be like walking down the street and all of a sudden there's a tornado that pops up right in front of you. Like, obviously you wouldn't kill a tornado, but the point of the fact is that that would be a dangerous, horrible thing. Okay. So as I always do, I'm going to read the tiger poem and then we're going to um i'm going to read it all the way through and then once we're done reading it through then we'll go through stanza by stanza and kind of talk about it now kind of remember what we talked about with the problem of evil before with how hume and how epicurus even though i think i kind of messed the readings up a little bit but how human and uh, epicurus approached those to uh, approach that problem and uh you know hume i think was in the 1600s and Epicurus was in the third century BC, uh, BCE, so you know before Christ. So separated by a long time, but they're still making fundamentally similar arguments. Okay, so you have that in your mind, and then also have the fear of tigers, how horrible and evil they are. They're not circus animals. Keep that in mind. Okay, The Tiger by William Blake. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp, dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Okay, so we start off with tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. It almost sounds like a nursery rhyme, right? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. I mean, it sounds like something you could read to a child. And then he, and I, that's not unintentional. You know, this is a warning to children to some degree, but it's also a question. He asks a lot of questions in this. 
So he's saying, here's this tiger burning bright. And we think of burning in this sense, you know, um, think of Milton's hell, right? We're, th- we're thinking about hell in this case. It's burning bright in the forests of the night. This is this, you can see the burning eyes of this tiger that's, you know, out there that prepared to kill you at any moment. What immortal hand or eye could frame, could frame. So there's, the, you know, by the, the word could, and this is something I always make a point of in poetry. A good poem, every single word is important. The sound of it is important. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the force. The fact that he's going after, you know, the sound of a kind of innocent um, a nursery tale is not irrelevant here. So sound is important. Words are important. Connotation is important. Denotation is important. Repetition is important. All of this is important in a poem. You know, a, a great poem, unlike what a prose, you know, dialogue, prose, you know, what we read with Hume and Epicurus is different in that there's, it's very limited. Like words and de- the definitions of words are important. The logic is important, but that's about it. You know, like the logic of the sentences, how they work together, and the the um, the the, the uh, denotation the the those are important connotations not is is important but not as important here in poetry all the elements of language the sound the rhythm the the the, the definitions the the emotions that they they evoke are all critically important and then the the whole w h o l e is important because as you'll notice that they the beginning and the end repeat and that's not a coincidence you know it's kind of you have this beginning and this, you know, it's uh, it's kind of a circular argument that they're creating. Sip, not circular in the sense in the negative sense of circular argument. Okay, so tiger, tiger, burning bright in the force of the night. What? So he's, now he asks the question: What immortal, immortal hand or eye? Right. So notice there's a difference. Um, uh, or, or no, that'll come later. Sorry. Uh, what immortal hand or eye could frame? So obviously. The thing that could frame, like you frame a house, the thing that could even come up with this symmetry, this fearful symmetry. Remember the images I showed him a second ago. The fe- if you're watching, if you're listening, then you can check it out on YouTube, uh, Kirk J. Barbera. But the fearful imagery are these paintings that you know. That's and, and the reality of that tiger. And, and just imagine if you saw a tiger in the jungle, like you would be dead, it'd be over, and you'd be terrified could frame thy fearful symmetry. So what has that power? So again, he's going to ask a series of questions. In what deep, dist- in what distant deeps or skies, think about the heavens or, or hells, he's not saying which one. And in fact, his imagery has all been burning, right, so far. In what di- and, and here we go, fire. In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? So he's using this dare. He's using wings. So we're, we're getting angels. We're getting, you know, I don't think he means pigeons in this case when he says wings. I think he's re- relating it to immortality. There's, you know, he's, conj- he's trying, William Blake is trying to conjure certain images. And so if you're a good reader, you know, it doesn't matter if you're born in, you know, if you're, you're uh, living in 2018 or 1794, you should, if you think for a moment, you can imagine that wings probably doesn't mean a dove. Now, maybe it does, but in the context of immortality, you know, you don't have to be a, a born and raised a Christian to kind of be somewhat in the imagery of this. 
Uh, on what de- wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? What what hand would dare seize the fire and create this monster and be able to create this beast, right? Like this beast that can kill humans without a thought, without a, a an inkling of you know slowing down. It could just destroy you. And what shoulder and what art? So you know, I when I, when I think of this. You know, I think of like the shoulder that a, a blacksmith would have to have. Like he'd have to have big forearms, a powerful shoulder, and then he'd have to have an art, right? He'd have to be, you know, good at his craft. Art in this context means craft, I think. So, and what shoulder, powerful shoulder of a god, um, and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? So, you know, think of Hephaestus, I believe, um, the, the ancient Greek god of armor, uh, armoring. You know, he was the god, blacksmith god. Um, could twist the sinews of thy heart. And when thy began, when you be, heart, when, and when your heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? So now he's talking about when you, tiger, because remember this starts off with tiger, tiger, burning bright. In the, he's talking about or to a tiger. Okay, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? So the poet is asking, where does this evil come from? Who, is, who, would, who would create an evil like this? In what hammer? You know, what the hammer? What the chain? In what furnace was your brain? You know, that's an important one too, I think, because you know, the question is, what would make you so vicious like that? There are animals that are big that aren't necessarily as vicious as you. I mean, giraffes and elephants are bigger. They don't necessarily grow as vicious as a a tiger, which is infamously one of the more vicious man-eating animals. I think it, it, it um, makes it to the top you know, five killers of humans by animals, as, as tigers, sharks, or something like that. What the hammer, what the chain, and what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil? So we're getting all these blacksmith images. What dread grasp dare its deadly terrors clasp? Okay, when the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears. Did he smile his work to see? So this is where we, this is very important. This is where he's answering in a sense without answering. He's, he's answering without answering. He's at least giving you a clue. Did he who made the lamb make thee? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears. So he's talking about the origin of you know, the universe now. Did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Now, there's, there's a couple of ways we can take the lamb statement. So you can take it purely metaphorically, right? Or you can take it uh, uh, realistically uh, in terms of there's a tiger and there's a lamb. So did this all-knowing, all-benevolent God create the tiger and then create a lamb, this innocent creature, that just to be eaten? Is that, is that the purpose of it? Just to have uh, this monster be able to eat a lamb? And then there's the, you know, the more metaphorical statement is if we think of the tiger as not just this evil or this, this destructive being, but as like destruction as such, you know, did, did he who made evil and destruction and suffering also make the innocence, the innocent that would be destroyed? And why would he do that? Right. And did he smile his work to see? Was he happy to create a being that destroyed and a being to be destroyed? Why would they do that? 
Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? So I think this is how a poet, um, especially a great romantic poet, William Blake, approaches the problem of evil. He gives you metaphors, he gives you rhythm and rhyme, and he gives you a bunch of questions posed in such a, 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 a manner as to kind of help you feel the problem of evil rather than to give you a logical argument um, like we saw earlier where we have something like, you know, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Where does it come from? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? So this also has a series of questions. Um, <clears throat> you know, is he God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's omnipotent. And then... Um, you know, so and then this one we have like a much more abstract. In the one by David Hume, we have a much more abstract view where God's power we allow is infinite. He's trying to make a whole argument, whereas Epicurean paradox is all about these questions: How can we have these things and not the and not understand um, and not and not criticize the God or even call him a God? And um, William Blake is not going that far and saying not a God, but he's opening the question about who could create a tiger and who create uh, could and, and then some simultaneously create the lamb to just be slaughtered, like a lamb to slaughter. Why would anybody or any creature or any supernatural being do that? Now, this one, tiger, t- uh, t- uh, The Tiger by Blake, is in the Songs of Experience, which was published in 1794. Now, before that, uh, William Blake published the Songs of Innocence, so he published the Songs of Innocence in 1789 in London, or in Brit- I think he was just in England. I don't remember. I think he might have been in London. In 1789, that's the year of the French Revolution. 1794 is the year after the Reign of Terror. So the Reign of Terror is 1793, where you have all this brutal, you know, killing of kings and beheadings, and you have the guillotine. El guillotine. <laughs> you have the guillotine, and you. Um, you know, just chopping off people's heads. And, you know, so there's part of what I think, now I don't know how relevant that is to what Blake is doing, but he definitely saw and read about these things. But what he is definitely trying to get at on some level, and, you know, that I think is is important to understand, what he's trying to uh, express is what he called showing the two contrary states of human nature. And so he's showing in the Songs of Innocence, which were released in 1789, a whole bunch of poems about, uh, very pastoral, very short poems about innocence and the consciousness of innocence. And, you know, so we're talking, this is like pre-original uh, sin. Like these are innocent children. These are uh, pastoral songs of kids playing and things like that. And there, now there's always a hint when you read them you know, one of my favorites is Echoing Green. There's a hint at the end of that. You can go read that if you want. Where there's a little bit of maybe there's a darkness in this evil, that the, the, in this innocence, that the innocence just was incapable of perceiving. And, and then in the Songs of Experience, it comes out much more expressly. Um, so I'm going to read real quick. We're not going to analyze it too much because I think it's pretty simple and I don't want this to run too long. But um, I wanted to read The Lamb. Now, The Lamb was written in 1789. So this is the Song of Innocence. And, you know, when you read this and then go, I'm going to challenge you 
to go back in yourself and read the tiger after having read the lamb here and think about what is going on when you think about this is from the songs of innocence. It's about pastoral innocence. It's about, you know, the, the, um, well, I mean, you know, the, the analogy of, or the, the metaphor for Jesus as a lamb, you know, and it, it raises a question of why would God give us his, his son to be destroyed? Why would he create a, a monster that just destroys and that's all that it seems to be good for? And then why also the lamb that just seems to be, you know, needed for the destruction? Just it's designed for destruction. Why? Okay, so here's the lamb. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Gave thee life and bid thee feed by the stream and o'er the mead. Gave thee clothing of delight, softest clothing, woolly bright. Gave thee such a tender voice, making all the veils rejoice. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Little lamb, I'll tell thee. Little lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name, for he calls himself a lamb. He is meek and he is mild. He became a little child. I a child and thou a child. We are called by his name. Little lamb, God bless thee. Little lamb, God bless thee. So you can see how much different the tone of this is. It's very innocent and, you know, childlike in the way that it's approached. And then uh, I'm going to challenge you to go back and read for yourself The Tiger by William Blake. So as always, if you have any questions, go ahead and, um, you know, just ask them in the comments below, or you can always email me at kirkbarber at gmail.com, and I will answer anything you want. So thank you for tuning in to The Tiger by William Blake. <laughs>